Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk Podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing, who will be part of the CanMed 2020 Conference in Pasadena, California, this September 20th through 22nd. We have a great episode for you today, as I had the chance to talk with the Medicinal Genomics Chief Scientific Officer, Kevin McKernan. Kevin is a legend in genomic sequencing, going back to his days working on the Human Genome Project. He has applied his experience and knowledge to trying to better understand the cannabis genome, which, as he mentions in our conversation, is one of the hardest genomes to figure out. So much so that many of the top minds in genetic sequencing have collaborated to try to solve this cannabis genome problem. And I think you'll see from our conversation that collaboration is something that Kevin is very passionate about. So it's no surprise then that Kevin and the team at Medicinal Genomics, and at that time, Corgen Life Sciences, came up with the idea for the CanMed conference to provide a place where cannabis researchers and clinicians could come together, share their data, and learn from one another. And if you'd like to learn from the leading minds in cannabis science, cultivation, medicine, and safety testing, you should definitely join us at CanMed 2020. Head over to canmedevents.com to learn all about the event and to buy your full conference ticket at our special 420 rate. For just $420, you'll get access to two days of oral and poster presentations, our expanded exhibit hall, coffee and lunch stations, networking events, and more. That $420 price is more than half off the full price, but the offer is only available through April 20th, so get your tickets today. Now, I would be remiss to not mention the COVID-19 pandemic. First, we all hope that you and yours are safe and healthy during this difficult time. This global health crisis has certainly changed life at CanMed events and medicinal genomics, and for me personally, as I record this from my home. By the way, I apologize in advance if any ambient noise from my children finds its way into the podcast. We understand you are likely dealing with your own challenges and struggling with the uncertainty of when we're all going to get back to business as usual. And of course, we understand how those factors play into purchasing a ticket for an event. In order to put your mind at ease, we want to let you know that if COVID-19 forces us to reschedule, you will be entitled to a 100% refund if the new dates don't work for you. For more information about our COVID-19 refund policy, please check out our website at canmedevents.com. In addition, Medicinal Genomics and CanMed Events would like to do their part to support the community and organizations in need. So 10% of any tickets sold before the April 20th deadline will be donated to the CDC's Emergency Response Fund. As of now, CanMed 2020 is still on for September 20th through 22nd, and we are working closely with the Pasadena Convention Center to make sure we can bring you this event. Should anything change, we'll be sure to let you know on our website and through our email list. Another great reason to sign up for email alerts. Again, we hope you stay safe and healthy. Before I get to my conversation with Kevin, we do have a sponsor for today's podcast, PacBio. Sequencing technology matters, and PacBio gets cannabis sequencing right. With easy-to-use workflows, long reads, and high accuracy, PacBio provides the tools to gain a complete view of genetic diversity. For more information, go to PacB.com. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Kevin McKernan, Chief Scientific Officer of 
Medicinal Genomics. Hello, Kevin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for uh, having me, Ben. Yeah, I figured it would be fitting to have you as our first guest since you've been so heavily, heavily involved in CanMed since its inception. So maybe we should start with um, you kind of telling the story about how CanMed came to be. Uh, wow, there, there's a long story there. It, it, um, it actually derived, I think, from a lot of the, the, uh, the parents that had children that are being treated in, in this um, kind of split medical care system we have. We've got um, nine, I think this was presented at CanMed last year, that only 9% of physicians are educated on the ECS. Um, and yet we've got a lot of people that uh, in the cannabis space have been forced to practice medicine in circumstances where they're either uncertified or, uh, you know, don't, don't have access to all the tools in the medical care system. So it creates a really challenging um, environment for parents who are, who are obviously and oftentimes having to use both systems, uh, both the, the, the current um, Western medicine while also seeking, you know, caregivers and other folks who are professionals at making some of these oils. So um, that, uh, that kind of a scientific apartheid uh, system that's occurred due to prohibition has really created a need for physicians uh, to educate many people in the cannabis field about the uh, things we need to worry about in treating a lot of these complex diseases. At the same time, for those physicians to learn from people in the cannabis field that have been making these products uh, sort of under the table for the last uh, 80 years. So um, uh, we've all, always found that, uh, you know, the division of labor makes people hyper-specialized and oftentimes the most productive interactions are, are cross-disciplinary. Uh, when you get together minds of people who are doing growing and people who are doing analytical chemistry, they're not always speaking the same language of people doing genomics or people that are, that are practicing medicine. So um, getting them all together to share notes is extraordinarily important right now. And that's kind of the spirit of CanMed. I think you're absolutely right. It's it... It seems like the the conference really started with a real medical focus, given the fact that uh, medicinal genomics is still part of cordogen at that point. But the conference has really grown to include more of those other disciplines, like you had mentioned, being cultivation and um, laboratory testing. So it, it's become a very important event for the community. Would you agree? I, I would definitely agree. And and at uh, you know the initial conferences were definitely more medically. Written, I encourage everybody to go and look at some of those um, uh, those presentations. You guys have done a great job keeping them all online, so you can kind of see the history. But it was really early in the early days to demonstrate the medical need, and so that you'll see a lot of uh, patient um, examples uh, and stories that are brought out early on with some of the physicians sharing their notes on on um, how those progressed. Uh, and then as it's grown, uh, there's been an interest in um, you know more money's coming to the space, more tool providers are more comfortable working in the space. So now we're seeing multinational companies come in um, that are sponsoring the event to, you know, show off mass spec equipment or the latest genomic tools or um, even some of the uh, uh, advances in the agricultural sector. And, and all of these are going to play a role because the cost of the medicine, uh, we clearly want to come down. Prohibition has clearly been elevating that price for some time, and it's only going to come down if we can really drive yield and efficiency in, in, in the process. And that, that requires a multidisciplinary approach. Absolutely. And so speaking of presentations, I wanted to talk a bit about what I assume you're going to be presenting about at CanMed 2020. Um, I mean, if we look back the last two years, you know, 2018 
we you kind of introduced this this project to create a new reference genome and talked about how it was funded through Dash and everything. And then 2019, we got another update about sort of that project and how it was progressing. And I know you have a lot of new and exciting information to share about the, the research you've done to the cannabis genome. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, so a lot of things have changed uh, radically in the sequencing space in the last few years. It's really coincided with um, cannabis becoming legal, which has been quite remarkable to see. There, there are these new long read sequencers. I mean, they've been out for a while, but they really, the long read sequencers have really been um, hampered by their error rates. They're not that accurate, but they can get you very long reads. Uh, that's something we've never had before in the sequencing space. And uh, to add to that, just this year, we saw PacBio finally get the single molecule sequencing to be more accurate than Sanger data, which has really been the gold standard technique that we use to initially sequence the human genome. You know, plant genomes are even harder than human genomes to sequence. They're more repetitive. The cannabis genome is upwards to 70% repeat content. That makes um, even these long read tools trip up on them unless they have the accuracy to separate all of the repeats that are in the, in the genome. They're closely related in similar sequences. And so you really need accuracy and long reads to, to make that come together. So those came together. Those tools really have only been available since this um, December. So we did present on Jamaican Lion last year, and those were done with some of the more error prone tools that had very long reads. And they they, they, re they really uh, pushed the genome forward quite a bit in terms of its completeness. But um, some of the centromeres and the telomeres and the repetitive regions that have a lot of these cannabinoid synthase genes are still somewhat uh, quagmire. Uh, and these longer read, more accurate tools, what, uh, what they are calling the HiFi system at, at PacBio, has, be has begun to resolve those. We're starting to see full-length telomeres and cannabinoid synthase gene clusters all perfectly resolved with these newer tools. Um, and that does change our perspective uh, on the genome and gives us a better tool to compare it to all the other cannabis genomes out there. This um, we, all, we all call it cannabis, and there's an active debate on how many species there are. But when you actually start looking at the genomes across multiple different varietals, you realize uh, one genome project isn't going to solve this debate. We're going to have, be in a world where we're looking at multiple different references, probably a, initially a cannabinoid-centric um, reference genome set where we're going to have type 1 references, type 2 references, type 3, 4s, and 5s. So we understand um, the genome from the perspective of the, the various uh, medical cannabinoids that, that, that they're producing. So you'll see some more data on um, how we've used these long read tools to really resolve and close the chapter on genome completeness with cannabis. And you'll also see some tools that are now being developed as a result of that. Now that we have a confident understanding of the order of all of these chromosomes, we've been building SNP chips with urofins um, that can get us 90,000 SNPs out of the genome, mostly in coding regions uh, that will be more likely to be um, representative of phenotypic changes or chemotypic changes in the plant. Uh, and these tools can now start to get deployed at, at, at mass scale. When you get involved with the DNA chips, they're really effective to run hundreds to thousands. Some people run 60,000 chip studies. Uh, and you can really begin uh, to tease apart uh, the, the markers that are predictive of yield outcomes. Uh, and I think that's a really exciting change for the cannabis field. And so was it that there was such advancement in sequencing technology that you just really saw an opportunity to improve upon the references that were out there? Was that really the, um, well, we, the driver? We initially got involved in this because um, there were only type 1 female references being uh, sequenced at the time, and we realized we really needed type 2 plants, plants that made both CBD and THC. 
Um, and, uh, and we wanted males sequenced as well. The, that Y chromosome is the largest chromosome, and, and it probably has a lot of um, information in it to understand hermaphroditism and other types of um, uh, characteristics of, of growing hemp versus growing um, drug-type cannabis plants. And so uh, we, we wanted to get more completeness there. The, the sequencing benefits were kind of an accident, and, and along the path of sequencing Jamaican line, the, the, the companies that are really heavily involved in this space for doing de novo assembly began to realize that cannabis is one of the hardest genomes they've ever seen. Um, you know, they've recently announced sequencing, I think, the Redwood and Sequoia, and even those genomes, are, which are bigger genomes in cannabis, they're not nearly as repetitive. So they're, they're, they're beginning to assemble into better quality than the cannabis genome. So the cannabis genome has become a bit of this trophy organism amongst the people who make DNA assembly tools, where they all want to crack it because it looks like it's one of the hardest ones to manage. Um, so this has created a little bit of a, an assemblathon. This is where all the people who build the DNA assembly tools are now working on cannabis. Um, you can see Sergi Corin has been playing around with this with this new assembler. Um, uh, Heng Lee at the Broad, who's another um, famous person working in uh, the DNA um, algorithm space, has, has got his new assembler um, that's been assembled with High ASM as the name of his assembler. Uh, Falcon has been updated. So all of the assemblers now have refactored and retooled and rewritten themselves to manage this new data content. That's that's a testament in and of itself. And right now, Jamaican Lion is the only cannabis plant that has these hi-fi reads run across it and put through five different assemblers. So it's um, uh, it's a really exciting time to see some of, some of these changes because with this accuracy means there are tools that we can develop and are being developed that can do DNA assembly faster than we can map Illumina reads. Uh, and that is a real change. We've not had that in the past. So there's, um, so there's an assembler called Peregrine we encourage everyone to look at. This is probably the fastest thing we've seen yet. Uh, we, we can assemble genomes now like on home computers, which has never been the case before. Um, so it's... Uh, it's, it's, it's really, uh, we can't take any credit for that advance. It kind of happens serendipitously, but the timing is just perfect uh, because we can deploy these things on the cannabis genome and get the whole community involved in trying to improve the, improve the reference. So for people who aren't maybe as familiar with the intricacies of sequencing and assembling, what, what does all this work really mean for the industry and where you know, cannabis breeding and cultivation can, can go with this information? Well, um, that and the answer to that will probably change over time and somewhat regulatory driven. Uh, the current regulations at the USDA have placed a deep emphasis on watching for residual THC content. And there's several sources, theoretical sources of residual THC content. Um, we can see genomes now that have only CBD synthase genes in them. Uh, and they still make residual THC. And this is actually supported with a lot of the cloning literature. If you clone CBD synthase into yeast and feed it precursor, you'll still get some, um, uh, some THC made by that enzyme. So there's a, about a 23 to 25 to 1 ratio we tend to see of CBD synthase leaking some THC synthase. Now, if your goal is to make CBD, you can't really get rid of that other than to screen for plants that might have variants in CBD synthase that alter that ratio. And there's some activity with site-directed mutagenesis that people are doing that may, that may drive that. Uh, there's other cannabinoid synthase genes in the genome that leak THC as well. So none of these synthase genes are, are, are really faithful. They're promiscuous. They make a little bit of side product that, that uh, is usually made by a specialized enzyme. So um, one thought uh, is still a theory, but we're, what, what, what our data seems to be pointing to is uh, you know, a good number of the plants out there 
have a deletion of the cannabichromine synthase gene cluster. This is a cluster that can have anywhere between three to eight different cannabichromine genes arrayed in it. And uh, you can see this in some type four plants. Type four plants have both THC and CBD deleted. Um, I should say THC synthase and CBD synthase are both deleted. So um, they shouldn't have any capacity to make THCA or CBDA, but yet we still see in these type four plants, uh, not just CBG being made, but also some residual THC. Granted, it's lower than what we see in type three plants. It's still making some, and we believe that's coming from the residual cannabichromine genes that may be present. So um, understanding the whole portfolio of cannabinoid synthase genes is really the path uh, to go if you want to get breeding for seed lines that can consistently make you low amounts of THCA. Um, it's almost, it's very difficult to do right now if you have a gene like CBD synthase that is leaking. If you grow that above eight or 9% CBD synthase, you'll start to see THCA pop up in those, uh, in those plants at a level that may make it um, uh, insufficient for USDA guidelines. So the, uh, on average, we're seeing over 40 different cannabinoid synthase genes to monitor. So when we do DNA sequencing or when we run these chips that we've built, um, we can begin to profile these. Um, we alone have seen through sequencing over 222 variants inside CBD and THC synthesis point mutations in the genes that might be altering its function. Um, those are all now embedded on the Eurofin chips, and we have, we'll have tools coming out shortly that will help breeders scan for genetics that have... Um, the highest likelihood of, of producing the, the, the best ratios. Uh, so I think that's what's going to be helpful for guiding maybe the, the, the cannabinoids, um, the major cannabinoids. Then there's an interest in figuring out what's making the minor cannabinoids, all right? What might be making THCP or CBDP? These are the, the, um, the, the, the longer side chain molecules that were discovered in Italy that are 30 times more potent. Um, we don't know what makes those. We don't think it's related to the synthase genes. We think it's related to the genes upstream in the cannabinoid synthase pathway. And um, the genetics may help lead the way uh, in predicting that. Uh, very recently, a cannabimavone uh, was described. Um, it was discovered in hemp 10 years ago, but now they're beginning to tease it apart and realize that it is, in fact, plant-derived, and we need to understand uh, what are the other synthase genes that might be responsible there. Uh, we're also getting some potential now to, to predict terpene expression based on the terpene synthase genes that we're seeing, uh, and we're hopeful we'll be able to get more focus on the canflavin gene set as well by doing more sequencing. The canflavins are showing a lot of promise in... Uh, I think I saw some work in pancreatic cancer and prostate cancer. So um, these are um, flavonoids that are often not tested for in the analytical chemistry labs. And CanMed's a great area to bring some of those papers forward, talk to the analytical chemist to see if there are standards and if there are ways to detect them, and get the extraction folks involved to know what's the best way to capture flavonoids. They, they may not be captured in oil extracts as efficiently as other extracts. And so um, that, that type of inter intersection with what the what the medical field is seeing from a cannabinoid standpoint to how to analytically detect them properly in, in, the, in the field and likewise how to potentially uh, grow for them and breed for them are all interdisciplinary tools that and, and discussions we need to be having with um, multiple different people and, and CanMed is the right place for that. So it really seems like figuring out the the cannabinoids, the flavonoids and the terpenes is really the first step with with genetics. Is that uh, well, I mean, that's one that's one section of yield. I mean, you're hinting at a really important point here, which is yield may also be related to trichome genes or to pathogen resistance. For instance, um, we uh, 
pathogens can severely limit a crop, uh, upwards to 40% lower yield if you have some of these pathogens. And understanding the pathogen resistance in the plants is likely going to bring us higher yield as well. So um, the paper we published back in January um, listed over 80 different pathogen resistance genes. These were mostly thaumatine-like proteins and chitinases and another loci known as MLO, which has been studied heavily in hops. Uh, well, if we can better understand those genetics, we can breed for plants that are powdery mildew resistance and, and perhaps have less uh, aspergillus uh, that might be present in them as well, uh, just by keeping an eye on the portfolio of, uh, of pathogen res resistance genes they have. Some of the genes involved in this pathogen response uh, are actually closely located next to the cannabichromine gene, such that when the plants are deleted in cannabichromine, uh, they may pull out five other genes for the ride in that deletion and make those plants more susceptible to pests. Um, that's a theory. It's not been proven yet. We just happen to know those genes are frequently deleted concurrently with cannabichromine. And if um, people are selecting for lines that don't have that to try and meet the USDA, uh, we got to keep a close eye on uh, on the pathogen response to those plants so they don't end up having hemp plants that are compliant with the USDA but are loaded with mold and mildew. Um, it's important to know the hemp market is not screening for mold and mildew the way the medical market is, and that's a bit of an exposure point for us. So whenever you talk about genetics and kind of genes and everything, a, a lot of people will start going to GMO or maybe even CRISPR. Is there... Do you foresee a, a potential that those types of technologies will be used in cannabis? Uh, they already are. There's no stopping that. Um, I know a lot of people find that to be controversial, but I think one thing uh, you will learn from looking at these cannabis genomes and just comparing them is the plant is a far better genomic engineer than we are at the moment. Uh, it is shuffling stuff around at a really high rate. I mean, we're seeing structural variations between these genomes that may include about an eighth of the genetic content in the plant. That's a tremendous amount of variation that can be occurring just between any two given plants. So um, people are going to make some modifications. Uh, and some folks are going to be very afraid of that, but they may not fully appreciate the fact that this plant is doing that on its own quite frequently and probably more intelligently than we are at the moment. Um, so I think there have been cases of people trying to delete THC synthase with CRISPR. And that's sure, it's a great plan, but we already have naturally deleted THC synthases in the population, and that doesn't give us 0% THC. Uh, there may be some other genes you need to delete as well, maybe another 39 cannabinoid synthase genes that are leaking. So, um, the, you know, the hemp transformation protocols are really early, and I don't know that you can do multiple site uh, mutagenesis with CRISPR and select for it and... and uh, it's early for those types of studies. I think what you're more likely to see uh, is rapid breeding, is finding the actual profiles you want in the in the field and intelligently breeding some of those characteristics out of the plant uh, and into the set of cultivars you're working with and getting um, you know CRISPR to transform plants and, and get those to be stably um, represented and, and not to be mosaics. Oftentimes when you do these um, genetic modifications, uh, it's very difficult to get them to transform every single cell in, in the plant. You have to start with a very small amount of tissue and hope that you get 100% transfection efficiency and then find a selectable marker that brings that out to the rest of the tissue type. That's not, um, that's not easy. And, uh, and so that limits um, uh, what you can do in many respects right now with the current CRISPR technologies. But um, I, I do think they're coming and I do think they're going to play a valuable role. I think some of the most exciting genetic engineering stuff that we're seeing is uh, the capacity to bring um, 
some of these genes into other hosts like yeast so that you can really torture test them as an individual gene in a different organism to understand what it does. So the work that we saw presented last year with Demetrix, interestingly enough, they were able to clone THC and CBD synthase into a yeast. And by feeding it different precursors from hexanoic acid to octanoic acid, they were able to get the yeast to make THCP. Uh, that taught us a lot about THCP. That taught us that THC synthase can, in fact, make it. And uh, so that's probably not where to genetically look for any of the mutations in the plant that are making it. But it also gave us a model to know that when you isolate this single gene and feed it particular precursors, you get a desired outcome. And that teaches us a lot about the biochemistry in the plant itself. So oftentimes, um, these tools of shuttling genes around teach us a lot about uh, the complexity of the plant so that we don't have to... Uh, we don't have to get do as much guesswork in the engineering we want to do in the plant. So do you foresee a future where folks are creating cannabinoids with yeast instead of the plant? I see some of that. Yeah, I think the, the, the benefits of the yeast derived cannabinoids uh, are that they'll be highly pure. You can you can make them and make only preferably only one or two of them, depending on um, how much uh, side product you get. The, the thing about yeast is you can control the conditions you grow it in and perhaps coax those enzymes to be less promiscuous in that environment. And then you can also put different molecules on them if you want to tag the cannabinoids uh, so that you can purify them. The dekeezing paper put a biotin on the tail. And there are ways to put biotins on molecules where it's removable. So they may be able to, they may be, you know, edging into a really highly purified form of one particular cannabinoid, which can be a little bit difficult to, to iron out in the plant. Um, that'll make for a great GMP grade. Um, I don't yet know if it's going to be competitive economically with the plant. Uh, when you start when you start getting more efficient breeding going on, the plant may in fact be a very productive way of making this. But those economic things are are you know best seen in the marketplace. I think. Uh, I don't think it's going to be necessarily an instant replacement for all these other compounds we want to make. Uh, and part of that is because you know you you've, we're feeding yeast sugar. And 99% of the sugar in the world is made by chloroplast. So um, it's it's likely that this is a, a great tool to simplify what's going on, but it may not necessarily be the most carbon efficient way to, to grow uh, uh, other cannabinoids. Uh, but we'll see. That's, that, that's kind of an open field. Uh, certainly, if we could get THCP expressed in the plant up to 20%, that, would, um, that might make it more productive to make in, uh, in cannabis. However, I don't know that THC or THCP is ever going to be grown outdoors, meaning it may remain artificially elevated in price such that yeast has an advantage. I don't know if people who are doing this in yeast are going to target CBD first. CBD is something you can grow outdoors, likewise CBG, and those economics are going to probably plummet a lot faster than indoor growing. So um, I, I view the right now the, the, it as a very helpful tool for us dissecting the biology, and it may in fact turn out to be uh, a very productive, um, uh, a very productive purification tool, if you will. However, we are consistently being reminded by these whole plant extracts being more productive than isolated compounds, and that seems to be a theme that's been in the cannabinoid space for twenty or thirty years. We don't always know why. Uh, we're doing the best we can to profile those things, but the complexity of um of the expression of of these uh of these plant derived um cocktails uh is uh, it, it may just be people need to get those plants cloned and there's a great story of um Abideco, which is uh an organ you know a plant that was sequenced and put on canopy i think tikamolum owns this um, this particular plant uh, but they went down the road of getting a plant patent and, and cloning that and making sure that that plant they could stably express the same um extract from 
and now they have that approved for autism in in, uh, in Israel, and that's 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 a label that's really specific to a plant that's dialed in at making a particular whole plant extract. Uh, and so I see that that model kind of emerging as people find certain plants that work for certain conditions. It's going to be faster to clone that and protect that plant and make the the uh, the extract that way than to figure out the complicated networks inside of yeast and try to make yeast mimic the exact. Um, uh, you know, recipe that the plant's making for that particular condition. So uh, I kind of see a couple different things emerging, but I don't really have a good crystal ball on which one's going to be most affordable. Well, and it's interesting you said that. That was going to be my follow-up question is, you know, if, if we were to move towards, you know, having yeast create these single compounds, um, what does that mean for the whole extract community? Because I know that there's there's a, a healthy debate between between the two of, you know, whether or not the future of cannabis medicine is the single compounds or whether it's a combination. And uh, I imagine that'll be a source of, of debate and conversation that'll certainly be taking place at, at CanMed this year. Yeah, no, indeed. I, I think it's um, maybe people are starting to see that it's, it's a bit of a false dichotomy to think it's going to be either or. The likely answer is it's going to be both, and it's going to depend on um, certain niche conditions in each of those, uh, those marketplaces. Cer- certainly, the FDA route uh, is more tuned for single compounds, but we have seen the story before in cannabis. Every time we isolate a single compound, the efficacy seems to go down, and we don't know why. Um, so the it makes for for cleaner science, it makes for cleaner studies, it makes for a more comfortable FDA process. Um, but for those who are looking at this as uh, you know a wellness product or something that is OTC and less FDA involvement. Uh, we may have the freedom to actually fine tune these extracts, but I, I think these whole plant extracts really do need a lot more analytical chemistry done than what we're currently doing on them. We are monitoring maybe a dozen cannabinoids and a dozen terpenes, but we really are not paying any attention uh, to the flavonoids and a, and a lot of the other compounds that, that could be in this plant that are playing a role. Um, that is something that I, I think we definitely need to up our game on if, if we're going to continue to push for this uh, whole plant extract approach. Absolutely. And one of the things that you've said so much um, during this conversation is it's early and, and we don't know yet. And I got to imagine that's got to be one of the reasons why um, you decided to put the Jamaican lion information and so much of the information that you put together public so that, you know, it can almost crowdsource this information and kind of accelerate our understanding of the plant. Yeah, it, it's uh, I've been through this story before, um, the, you know, when we sequence the human genome, it, it is one of these scenarios where it unleashes so much information into, into the world that no single company can possibly comprehend it all. Uh, and so you're actually held back by trying to, to hoard the data. Uh, the more eyeballs that look at it, the more other things are discovered and it advances. We all, we all build upon each other's knowledge base here. Knowledge is cumulative, right? So um, getting data public is uh, has been extraordinarily helpful. We've already seen multiple people publish off of the Jamaican Lion reference before we did because they were at a stage in research where we were the last piece of the puzzle in their research. It filled it out and they were able to publish some really meaningful results uh, while we were still trying to get the publications ready for um, uh, for peer review uh, on an entire genome. So it's really important the data is out there public uh, because uh, this allows it to float all boats. And even if it's your competitor's boat, it's going to help you. Uh, it may be hard to see at first, but it uh, it does happen. So 
Um, there's a few of those publications out there you can look at. There's a proteomic map by Ben Orsborn's uh, lab that was uh, that was published. There's some work from Keith Allen on the terpene synthase genes in Jamaican line that was published. There was a recent review article with Nolan Kane's lab um, that was reviewing a lot of the genomes that has uh, looked at Jamaican line. Uh, I will caution folks, so there are three different um, uh, main publications we have done. There's the earliest work we put out instantly in October 1st in 2018 on this, and that those are some of the more... Uh, um, I'd say the, the earlier draft genomes that we have, this recent publication in January of 2020 has some updated sequencing on it that has, uh, I think it improved the contiguity of the assembly about fivefold, and it's better annotated now. We have the annotations of all the genes because we did RNA sequencing on there. And if you want any of the bleeding edge stuff that's going on, the assemblathon is all public. These are unannotated references, but they're the highest contiguity references uh, that have ever been generated. You can see full length telomeres on these things, which is really remarkable. We've never been able to see those before. Uh, and uh, that's uh, kind of where the, the folks who want to play with the latest and greatest are, are jumping on the, uh, the assemblathon data. Excellent. And I know that you've, you've touched on it throughout the, the conversation, but I was wondering if you might be able to kind of summarize, what does all this work really mean for healthcare providers or cannabis patients? Why should they be excited about all this work being done in genomics? Well, I think we're going to get, it's going to solve some of the nomenclature issues. Many patients will know that this strain you know, works for me. I don't know why. It seems to have the same THC level as the next one, but that one gives me a headache or have some other adverse, I get sleepy, some other adverse effect happens. So uh, and then when they move state to state, they can't necessarily rely on that same strain name to get them the same response. Um, and so once we start getting genetic um, signatures across all of these things, we will begin to change the nomenclature from being, uh, you know, this is a, a sativa or an indica, and this one's going to give you couch lock, and this one's going to be uplifting. I mean, th those, those are all associations on taxonomy that doesn't exist. Uh, and so we really need a genetic taxonomy system so we know and we can solve this um, sort of strain-specific um, uh, whole extract market, if you will. Uh, the other thing I think it's going to do is it is going to enable people to look at the genome and do different things and think, okay, we have problems with uh, too many males in open fields and the feminization process we're afraid of. How do you solve that problem? Some people might want to put markers in the Y chromosome so they can easily detect males and remove them more easily than doing perhaps genetic tests. Um, one concept people have been throwing around is putting a green fluorescent protein on the Y so they can run drones over fields and image them for the ones that might be expressing in a certain wavelength. Um, crazy idea, but it would probably work. Um, don't know if it's economical, but there, there's ideas like that that weren't generated in our hands. They're just ideas that have emerged in the community ever since there's now we have a Y chromosome and we know what to target. I think we're going to see the same thing in modulating some of the cannabinoids and modulating some of the other compounds in the plant that are lowly expressed. Many of the cannabinoid synthase genes, we believe, have been um, bred into near extinction because we had one biomarker we could test for, and that was THC. People could smoke cannabis and know that we were breeding in the right direction. But we now know that the biochemistry involved in the plant means the expression of one cannabinoid is a bit of a zero-sum game. Uh, the precursors are all competitive, and so when you breed for one cannabinoid, you lose the others. So prohibition has probably bred many of these rare cannabinoids into near extinction, and we need to rescue them. And uh, the genomics is going to lead to a map on how to rescue those. Uh, and I think that's where uh, we'll see some of the most exciting work in the next year. Now, it's really interesting you touched on that because I had kind of been wondering that myself is that 
you know, is there a future where some of these minor cannabinoids actually become major cannabinoids in plants? Um, is there I think a possibility so. that could happen? I think there is. And I think it's important while we're doing that breeding, we take a holistic picture. Uh, we look at all of these other pathogen response genes to make sure we're not sacrificing yield or, or pathogen exposure to grab one of these cannabinoids. Um, we're, um, we're actively in the space of monitoring the microbiome of the plant. We make a lot of the testing kits out there that look for aspergillus, E. coli, and salmonella, and powdery mildew, and a variety of these um, uh, of these common endophytes that are in the plant. So uh, we think this is a really important space. We really need to understand the microbiome of the plant in order to make sure we can produce the right amount of, uh, of compound with the least amount of patient exposure. And uh, you can't really grow these plants like a boy in a bubble. That's not how they operate. They really do need symbiotic relationships with other microbes. They just have to be microbes that aren't pathogens to humans. Uh, and so that process, I think, is going to be uh, more than just genomic driven. It's going to be microbiome and genomic driven. And, and, and you need both tools to really, I, I think, skin that cat. All right, Kevin, we're coming up to the end here. It's always fascinating talking to you about these things. Um, if people want to learn more, what are the best ways to, to learn more about what you've been talking about today? Well, there's a lot of the Jamaican line data is an NCBI, um, NCBI, there is a high friction to get data in there. So it's always, uh, probably three to six months behind what you can find in our website. Our website has uh, the assemblathon on it and, and a lot of the data links to a lot of the data there. Um, so if you can't find it in CBI, make sure to contact us or comb through our website. We can get you early access to that data there. Um, I'd also keep an eye on uh, the Koji genome browser that we have. We have a couple uh, tutorials online teaching people how to play around with that Koji genome browser. This has now, it has 47 whole genome shotgun samples that are in there. Um, so that's, that's, that's got, um, hemp lines, that's got type four lines. It has hermaphroditic lines. It's got THCV lines in it. It has just a wide array of different cannabis plants that are now whole genome sequenced and public for everybody to use. Uh, and it also has a trio of uh, Jamaican lion samples. It's got a, a male and a female and an offspring that have all been de novo assembled. So it's a really good resource to take your sequencing data made from any platform and thread it in there. Um, so if you've sequenced somewhere else, you can find ways to take that data and align it against the Jamaican lion references so that you can compare it to all of this RNA data and whole genome shotgun data from other organisms. So that's becoming a really uh, nicely and heavily used tool. Uh, so people can search this stuff. Uh, and then likewise, um, other, um, we, we've got a lot of content on our, on our Facebook page and, uh, and our website regarding a lot of the pathogen work that we're doing. We are having some great success um, cloning enzymes out of the plant that are, we believe are responsible for some of the resistance of these molds and expressing them in other organisms like E. coli so that we can make cannabis proteins that we know fight off fungi. Uh, so we think that may turn into a really interesting um, direction or kind of a green chemistry for pesticides that don't, that don't generate small molecules that enrich in extraction. We want to go enzymatic here so we can make natural cannabis peptides uh, that destroy or attack fungi and do not enrich or cause any risk in the, in the extraction process and, and contaminating oils. So that's a, a whole new kind of green chemistry field that we're looking at. Excellent. A lot of things going on. We love it. Um, any any closing remarks about CanMed specifically? 
Um, I think it's going to be a banner year. I know there's a lot of, uh, right now, there's been a lot of nervousness over the COVID uh, crisis that's going on. Um, we are still planning CanMed. Our, uh, we've been paying close attention to that uh, pandemic. And uh, in fact, we've even built ourselves our own little COVID test here for employees. Uh, so we're not taking it lightly, but we do sense there's optimism in the air and that this will pass and that some of the, the compounds that are coming to play here are showing some promise. Uh, in that the uh, the testing rates that we're seeing uh, lead to a little bit of optimism. There is a, there's a, a high number of patients out there um, that don't have this or or the antibody tests are beginning to show have some immunity. So we do, we don't think this is going to stall CanMed uh, or delay it. We actually think that we're going to be around this corner uh, by summertime and that the conferences will then assume and, and we'll need them by then because so many have since been canceled. So uh, keep keep the uh, date open for CanMed. We think it's still going to go live, and we think it's going to be a banner year. Great way to close it out. Thanks again, Kevin. All right. Yep. Take care, Ben. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kevin. I've included some links in the show notes to read more about the work that he's doing and to view some of the presentations that he's done at prior CanMed events. You can find those videos and the videos of all our previous presenters at canmedevents.com. And while you're there, don't forget to purchase your ticket at that special $420 rate. It's only good through 420, so buy it today. And be sure to check out our next episode where I sit down and talk with Dr. Ethan Rousseau. Dr. Rousseau is a board-certified neurologist specializing in child neurology. His interest in medicinal plants led him to incorporate cannabis into his practice and his research. Since then, he has authored several books and articles about the endocannabinoid system, and we are so excited to have him as a keynote presenter at CanMed 2020. That episode will drop April 15th, but if you subscribe to our feed, it'll download directly to your device. And please also go to canmedevents.com to sign up for email updates so you can be entered to win a pair of tickets to our VIP dinner. And please also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CanMedEvents. Well, until next time, bye-bye for now.